According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 10, my favorite chapter of my favorite book, and my favorite verses within the chapter, verses 19 through 25, as it centers on our priesthood. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a few moments of silent prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed to confess any sin that needs to be dealt with and to prepare our hearts for the teaching of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness. Though we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And Father, we are the objects of your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your Son who went to the cross to purchase our redemption. We thank you for the eternal life we have by believing in Jesus Christ. As simple as that, Father, he paid the price and we receive the benefit simply by believing in Christ. Father, I thank you for the Word of God, whereby uh, it goes forth through a Spirit-empowered communicator and it is received through spirit-empowered listeners. I thank you that every born-again believer is a believer priest with a permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. And so we combine spiritual transmission with spiritual reception, and uh, we call upon that faithfulness once again this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding to this very beautiful passage. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, there is a great big therefore in Hebrews ten nineteen. And it really includes everything in nine and a half chapters leading up to Hebrews 10, 19. But the contrast between those guys and us couldn't be more severe. Those guys, the Levitical high priest, Israel's priesthood in the Old Testament versus the body of Christ in the New Testament because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He went to the cross, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father's right hand. Jesus is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God, and he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is overseeing our priesthood right now. We're right there with him, and we're going to see that as we enter within the veil. So Hebrews ten nineteen. therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, this is our text and we're going to go through it. We did about half of it last week. I want to do the rest of it here this morning, including a significant translation puzzle that we're going to uh, fix in, uh, in verse 25. And uh, we're going to have to deal with that appropriately. And since if you were with us last hour, you've seen the vocabulary already that will help with this. And I'll tell you what that means uh, as we get to it. 
But this passage talks about our priesthood in Christ. You and me, we are, if you're a born-again believer, if you have eternal life, you are ushered into this priesthood at that moment. And so you serve as a priest with Jesus Christ. And that's totally different from the Old Testament. I, I wouldn't qualify. Most of us wouldn't. I don't think any of us would qualify unless you're Jewish. And if you can prove your Levitical standing, if you can prove your descent from Aaron, then you would be eligible, but only within the parameters of the, of the divisions as David restructured them in their 24 divisions and all the rest. We don't qualify. Jesus didn't qualify. He, uh, he, he didn't qualify to be a priest on this earth, but his priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek, according to the power of an indestructible life. You and I share that indestructible life because we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So this priesthood is our priesthood. And having confidence to enter there, goodness gracious, if the, how many people got to go into the earthly tabernacle? One guy, one day a year. And if somebody went in there improperly, they were struck dead. There's no confidence in that. If anybody went in there with the wrong sacrifice, with strange fire like Nadab and Abihu, there's no confidence there. You go in with strange fire, God will strike you dead. But we have confidence. And we are within the veil even now as we assemble together to receive instruction in the name of Jesus Christ. We are within the veil now. And this, uh, we have every confidence and every right to be here. Becomes a, uh, a significant blessing for us. All right, so picking up what we dealt with a week ago, I think the understanding of verse 19 and verse 20 points backward and also points to now what Jesus did and what Jesus continues to do. The priestly function of the church is based upon what Jesus Christ did That's what he did in shedding his blood on the cross, verse 19, but also what he continues to do in verse 20. Understand it's a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. He inaugurated for us. We weren't around in 33 AD, (laughs) but we were around now. The present role now is that he holds that veil open, that he inaugurated it. He went into the holy place as a forerunner, expecting that we would follow him. You know, it's not much of a forerunner if you're the only guy in there. Uh, The forerunner is expected to have a body of priests that follows him into this worship service. And so what he did and what he continues to do, notice verse 21 since we have a great priest over the house of God. That's present tense. That's present time. He is functioning right now as our great high priest. And so since we are priests and he is our great high priest, it behooves us to learn. Behooves? Did I use that word? I never use that word. I hope I used it right. It behooves us to learn what our high priest is doing so that we can function with him in his priesthood, see? And so what he did and what he continues to do, we have a great priest over the house of God. And the idea of bringing living sacrifices is remarkable. By the way, in the Old Testament, they did what they did with shadows and types. They did what they did with the Levitical priesthood, but they couldn't even approach what we have today. Because what they would have required, you know what they would have needed? They would have needed us. They would have needed a victorious Christ in his work on the cross. They would have needed a savior, a high priest seated at the father's right hand. And they never got that. The high priest they had went within the veil, then turned around and came right back out. Whereas Jesus opened the veil, passed through the heavens 
and is seated at the right hand of God. All those priests stand daily ministering. Jesus ministered once and sat down. And the book of Hebrews shows us these powerful contrasts and what is a blessing for us to have a seated Savior. He is in session on His throne. And all of that solemnity, you know, when a judge enters a courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, and then the judge takes his seat. The court is in session when the judge is seated. And then we're allowed to sit and we have court, if you've ever participated in a court proceeding, all right? And so similar language now with respect to our high priest who is seated. The session of Jesus Christ is unique to the church age and our position as well, seated at Christ's right hand, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 spells that out. So the fact is now we get to bring living sacrifices. It is a new and living way. When he opened up a new and living way, we get to come bringing living sacrifices, ourselves as living sacrifices. You're familiar with Romans 12? Romans 12 says we are the living sacrifices and we present ourselves. I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We get to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And that, to me, is so much better than walking in here and butchering a goat, killing an animal, or any, any, any dead sacrifice whereby blood is shed. All right? The dead sacrifices are over. Jesus died and rose again. We now live in the living sacrifices, in the new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Each member of the body of Christ is a living sacrifice as the blood of Christ inaugurated a new and living way into the holy place. Only church-age believers born again into a living hope are living stones in this embodied temple. You know, Israel had a temple. We are a temple. Isn't that great? You should write that down. Israel had a temple. The church is a temple. That's profound. Okay? Louis Bray Schaefer gave me that in his systematic theology. It is so profound to contrast Israel and the church, and that's one of the easy ways to do it. 1 Peter 1.3 We are living stones. By the way, if you're ever feeling gloomy or down on yourself, this is a good text for your self-esteem. This is a great text to remind you how choice and precious you are in the sight of God. If you think that uh, you're not important or that you don't matter, you matter a lot because God gave His Son to purchase your eternal life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a church-age blessing that Israel couldn't experience because they had not yet seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We see it. It's our living hope. And we have that introduction. Verse 23 of 1 Peter 1 says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. This is your heavenly DNA. Understand that. Your biology you got from your parents. Your, your father, here's my Father's Day message for you. Your father contributed the seed. Your mother contributed an egg. And boom, here you are. There's your biology. Your heavenly DNA. Where did that come from? God the Father birthed you 
At that moment when you believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you were born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. And so we have a heavenly seed. We have a heavenly birthright in this new birth. And, and that imperishable life, that indestructible life, is what suits us with Jesus. Remember, it's the power of an indestructible life that's the basis for our Melchizedek priesthood. That uh, we're not qualified for a Levitical priesthood because that depends upon who your earthly father was. But this indestructible priesthood depends on who your heavenly father is. And we all qualify in this, in this beautiful, beautiful priesthood. When we cross over to chapter 2, Peter continues to speak of this. Verse 4 says, uh, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Remember, Jesus was the cornerstone. He was the chief cornerstone, but he was the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. They, they rejected him. They stumbled over him. Well, that same stone they stumbled over is our capstone, is our chief cornerstone in the body of Christ. And so coming to him as to a living stone, they killed him and thought that was going to solve their problem. He didn't stay dead, right? He rose on the third day. And now he's the living stone. And that didn't, now they got a bigger problem. <laughs> because now they need to call upon the one whom they pierced to be saved. Israel to be saved as a nation. The Jewish people will, will have a future salvation. But they have to call upon the Christ that they crucified. The, the stumbling stone. And so he's now a living stone. Rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones. And if you want to, feel free to go ahead and take that verbiage from verse 4 and re-inject into verse 5. You also as living stones, choice and precious in the sight of God. Get that? Because it's included. It's a living stone blessing principle that he has it, we have it. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this is our priestly function. This is what we do in the body of Christ. Only church age believers born again into a living hope are living stones in this embodied temple. It is an embodied temple. And it's the body of Christ that, con that consists of that temple. The heavenly veil is his flesh. Now this we've got to take some time with. The heavenly veil is his flesh. And when we're taking communion and we celebrate his flesh and his blood, and of course we have his flesh represented by the bread, we have his blood represented by the wine, and we understand it's his character and it's his work. But specifically speaking, the, the, the spiritual death on the cross is what purchased our redemption. But that's not the veil. The veil is his flesh. And I want, to, I want that to sink in. I want us to be wrestling with this. Understand it is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ by which he condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 spells this out. And the author of Hebrews would have had this in his theological background. The readers of Hebrews would have had this in their theological background. We need to have this in our theological background when we find out that the flesh is the veil that Jesus opened for us into the heavenly holy of holies. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. 
what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Got that? Because all of us fell short. No one could keep the law. We're all sinners, and in the flesh we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus came in the flesh and never sinned. He remained sinless. So when we take the bread in communion, not only do we celebrate His sinless flesh, but now we can add to that the blessing of His flesh being the veil that He inaugurated for us to have our heavenly priesthood. What uh, the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin, in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Notice, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, if He would have come as the angel of the Lord, He couldn't have done this. If He would have come as the burning bush, He couldn't have done this. If He was to come, any of the Old Testament appearances of Jesus, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, any of the other Christophanies when, when Jesus Christ appeared, the angel that wrestled with, with Jacob all night long, any other appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, until the incarnation, until the virgin birth through, through Mary in the manger, until the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, God was not condemning sin in the flesh and preparing for our priesthood. This, this theologically becomes significant. He condemned sin in the flesh so that, purpose clause grabs my attention, so that the requirement of the law, here we go, the thing I can't keep but he can, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit according to the Spirit. So this becomes the dynamic. If you are out of fellowship, if you are carnal, then you are walking according to the flesh. And on that basis, you can't enter the veil. You can't function in your priesthood. You can't walk according to the flesh. You've got to walk according to the Spirit. That's what He provided for us when He condemned sin in the flesh. That's what He inaugurated when He inaugurated the veil that is His flesh and opened that up for you and for me. So we can stop trying to live a legalistic life in the flesh and earn something and merit something and make God happy and give up on that. Walk by grace under the power of the Holy Spirit and walk, walk in the leading of Jesus Christ as the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the requirements are fulfilled in Christ. We measure up in Christ, not with what we ourselves are doing. So the heavenly veil is His flesh. It is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ by which He... And you know that's what incarnation means, right? To incarnate, to put into flesh. When you think carne, right? Chile con carne, carne gasada, whatever. I'm getting hungry. Carne is flesh. So when the Word became flesh, it was God incarnate. God the Son took on flesh in a way the Father and Holy Spirit never did. So through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, He condemned sin in the flesh and cleansed the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25-27. Now if I really wanted to take... Uh, three months to teach this, we would go back to Leviticus and Exodus and we would show you all of the bathing that Aaron had to do and all of the washing that, that the Levitical priests had to do. 
And uh, we're not going to do it. If you want, go ahead and read Leviticus and, and read all that. They did an awful lot of bathing. I just want to give you the church age equivalent. And it's in Ephesians 5. It's in a passage that shows up in wedding ceremonies, it shows up in, in marriage counseling, it shows up in, in other contexts because it's related to husbands and wives, Christ and the church, and the order of headship and the, and the blessings of submission that are found in, uh, in the Ephesians 5 passage. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, okay, easy enough. No, wait a minute, slow down now. You see, it's easy because you know, romantic love or personal love or fellowship love or sexual love or any other kind of love, when the object of that love is lovely, well then, yeah, that's easy. But agape is integrity love that does not take into account the merit of the object. It allows you to love the unlovely. God so loved the world and the world was not lovely. And we're commanded to love our wives despite their loveliness or unloveliness, say, When they're not lovely, we love them as Christ loved the church. And so as Christ loved us and gave Himself up, that means we have to be sacrificial. We have to lay down our life if that's what it calls for. So, And then it goes on, so that He might sanctify her. Now here's a part that we don't really get to or that we don't think has a marital parallel, but it does. All right? It does. Slow down now, okay? Because we have to give our wives baths. All right, but it's not what you're thinking. It's cleansing with the Word of God. It's washing with the Word of God. So that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The Word is cleansing. So that He might sanctify her. Isn't this beautiful? That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Now, our modern wedding services don't incorporate this. This is all, uh, in fact, we've got other traditions whereby the groom is kept separate from the bride and he's not supposed to see her at all on the wedding day until she walks down that aisle, until her father's walking her down that aisle, and then he sees her for the first time I don't know who invented this tradition, but that's what they do. And, um, and so you see her when she's walking down the aisle. And the groom is not in the process, of, and, and she's already dressed at that point. She's in fine linen, white and clean, and she's, she's bathed, and all this stuff has happened. And, uh, but this passage is talking about the cleansing. If, if the bride has value, it's because of what the groom did on her behalf. And whereas our weddings tend to celebrate the bride, Scripture celebrates Jesus Christ. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. At midnight there was a shout. And, uh, and so this is the element that we want to recognize. Because the bride is beautiful because of the groom, because of what Jesus did. And so we, likewise... He might present to Himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we, she, would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Remember, we're the body of Christ. And, and so we have this. And so Jesus Christ, not only did He save us, 
Not only did he die on the cross to purchase us our eternal life, our redemption, but he also supplied us with his word. And Jesus Christ washes us. He cleanses us. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin, we're told. We have ongoing cleansing. And the word of God cleanses us, equips us for our priesthood. And this is why I think very few believers are actively engaged properly in their priesthood. Because I think very few believers are living in the Word of God to a sufficient degree that they can have this cleansing to function in a, in a, in a mature way in, the, in their priesthood function. So we condemn sin in the flesh and cleanse the bride of Christ for our priestly function. And when it talks about we've been cleansed in Hebrews 10... The background of Romans, the background of Ephesians is already there for the, uh, the readers of this epistle. So let us draw near. <clears throat> let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's our positional truth, sanctification by, uh, saved by grace through faith. But then also our bodies wash with pure water. When you live your life according to the Word of God, that's a sanctified walk. You can present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. You don't need a a literal ritual. You don't need a liturgical uh, cleansing bath or a liturgical cleansing washing. The Word of God will handle that for you. And we can function in our priesthood. The house of God is our priestly function, which carnal believers forsake when they fall away from the faith. The house of God is our priestly function, which carnal believers forsake when they fall away from the faith. As it talks about here, we have a great priest over the house of God. And this expression gets a lot of confusion, gets a lot of debate. Well, what is meant by the house of God? And some people just say, well, it just means you're saved problem all right because old testament believers were saved but they were not the house of god what do we mean by house and we taught this in uh, in chapter three we actually taught this at some length and we'll maybe touch upon that here this morning as well but because the house could be your immediate family it could be your clan it could be your your royal house if you were a king the house of david for example but the most common use of house in the old testament is the temple the temple is the house of God. Hundreds of times, the, the Jewish temple was called the house of God. And so the Jewish people had a house, but they were not the house. You and I are the household of God if, if, and that's a great big if, and it's not connected to being saved. Obviously, if you're not saved, you'll never get there, but it's being saved and it's living in the word of God and it's being in fellowship When you're carnal, you're forsaking your house. You're forsaking your priesthood in Christ. So the house of God is our priestly function, which carnal believers forsake when they fall away from the faith. And this is the warning that was given in chapter 3. This is what we learned, and we're so blessed to learn, that it's not uh, designed to scare you about losing your salvation. It is designed to scare you about forsaking your priestly access, forsaking your priestly function. Do you remember this in Hebrews 3? Because Moses was faithful as a servant, 
He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Moses supervised as they built the tabernacle and supervised as the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant as they functioned in the tabernacle. But of course, the builder of the house gets more glory than the house. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. In other words, you and I here today learning about this in the book of Hebrews. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Notice now, whose house we are. You and I, the we is the body of Christ in the church age. Whose house we are if, if, now this is not staying saved or losing your salvation if you go carnal. This is uh, our priestly function, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's a rapture reference, by the way. We hold our confidence. The exhortation is we enter the veil with confidence and we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And we hold this confession firm until the end. Can you make it to the end? Can you make it to the end of the race? Well, not if you don't know how long the race is. <laughs> what if the race ends today? Can you make it to the end? Because it could end today. When the trumpet sounds, the, the finish line for the church is that trumpet, the rapture of the church, as we studied last hour. So verse 6, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, I'm reading from Hebrews 3.12 now, take care, brethren, save people, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You and I can fall away in apostasy. Not, not losing our salvation, but it's falling away from our priesthood in the house of God through an evil, unbelieving heart. But encourage one another. This is coming back in chapter 10 as well. That's why we don't neglect. That's why we encourage one another more, uh, more and more as we see the day drawing near. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today because the rapture can be today. So encourage one another today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, again, this is our priestly function in the house of God, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, until the rapture. We're functioning in our priesthood, waiting for the trumpet to sound. And so this is uh, what we deal with. And so for those believers that fall into apostasy, they still have their eternal life. They can't lose their salvation. They're going to go to heaven when they die. But in the meantime, they are walking in darkness here and now, and they are outside of the house of God. They are outside of the temple function that they are supposed to be participating in as believer priests. When you are carnal, you are not functioning in your temple capacity as a priest, as a living stone, choice and precious in the sight of God. You're just not functioning that way. How sad is that? <coughs> Which brings us now to verse 23. Hebrews 10, 23. And so what do we do? <laughs> you know, we have confidence to get in there. What do we do now? 
uh, Aaron, you know, had to do all the preparation to get in there. He got within the veil. What did he do? What do we do? We enter within the veil. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The first thing we do when we get in there is we relax that it's not our faithfulness, it's His faithfulness that allows our priesthood to glorify God the Father. It's His faithfulness that operates. Let Him do the work. God's at work in and through you to do in the will of His good pleasure. Stand before Him and rejoice in His faithfulness. And hold fast the confession of our hope. What is our confession? The confession of our hope. Did anybody grow up in a liturgical church? Did you have to memorize the Westminster Confession at some point? There's other confessions. That's Westminster is probably the most famous for us. But there were confessions before Westminster. And um, creeds, the Apostles' Creed. Did you ever have to, yeah, okay. Memorize the Apostles' Creed. Or memorize, you know, there were a bunch of creeds. And then we had confession, the Heidelberg Confession. There's another one. And uh, there's other confessions and creeds and so forth. And um, those arose in church history, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad they did, but I'm also sad that they did, because I think in light of those, we lose focus on what these confessions are all about. And this confession is awesome. We want to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Confession, right? It's a beautiful term. And sadly, I think the only time we think about it is when we're rebounding our sins and getting back in fellowship. All right? 1 John 1, nine is the only confession verse in a lot of believers' Bibles, and that's a problem because there's more powerful confessions we have to do. Homologeo, to say in agreement with another statement. And so when I confess my sins, I'm homologeo, confessing my sins, agreeing with God that it is a sin and calling upon Him and in forgiveness and, and restoration of fellowship. That's confession of sin. But homologeo has other applications by which we can give the good confession. Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jesus gave the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. So let's look at confession You see, our confession has an apostle and a high priest, Hebrews 3.1. Our confession has a throne of grace in Hebrews 4.14. And our confession has a promised hope in Hebrews 10.23. Our confession has an apostle and a high priest. What is he called? The apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, there we go. Our confession also has a throne of grace. Remember this? Hebrews 4. And um, <clears throat> we want to, I mean, do we want to rush ahead to verse 16 and say, yes, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? I understand that verse is very attractive and I want to rush forward to it, but let's see the verses that get us there. Because verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So our confession has an apostle and high priest, stated both in Hebrews 3.1 and 4.14. But our confession also has this throne of grace. So let us hold fast our confession. When the Apostle Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he was holding fast to our confession. That we are born again believers of the church age. We are the body of Christ in Christ. We have no other argument. We have no other plea, right? That's the hymn we sing. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Okay? I have no other argument. All right. Our confession has an apostle and high priest. Our confession has a throne of grace. What did they have? They had a mercy seat. They didn't have a throne of grace. They had a mercy seat. And they had to apply blood to that mercy seat every year as a reminder of sins. As they applied the blood, he saw the blood, he passed over their sins, and they were good as a nation. The Jewish nation was good for another year until they came back next year at the Day of Atonement. And next year they had to apply the blood again to a mercy seat. When did Israel ever have a throne of grace? They never had a throne of grace. You and I have the throne of grace because we have the apostle and high priest of our confession that brings us to that throne of grace. We also have a promised hope. A promised hope. And what is this promised hope? Well, we have a living hope. We have this promised hope. We have this confidence that we hold until the end. So what is the hope that's connected to the end? Well, we studied the last hour. It's the rapture of the church. The, the, the happy hope, the blessed hope. We hold that firm until the end. We woke up this morning disappointed that the trumpet didn't sound as we were sleeping last night. And so we got out of bed and got dressed and started a new day with the living hope that we're not going to go to bed tonight. Because that's the hope we're waiting for when that trumpet sounds and when Jesus calls us home. Our promised hope. And we confess that. We agree with God. He said, behold, I come quickly. So today is fine. <laughs> okay? I can clear my calendar today. If uh, I will even miss my Father's Day lunch at Pluckers if that trumpet sounds... If that trumpet sounds before I get there. Understand, confessing Christ may have earthly consequences, but not confessing Christ has heavenly consequences. This verb confession is so beautiful, and don't run from it, embrace it. Confessing Christ, you know, when Jesus was walking this earth, some of the Jews were secretly believing in him, but they were afraid to confess him for fear of the Jews, for fear of the religious leaders that would expel them from the synagogues, that would expel them from temple observances. John nine twenty two, and he heals the man born blind. They don't believe his testimony, so they go to the parents and they want the parents to testify that he was born blind and that he was living blind his whole life. The parents could easily do that, but they don't want anything to do with it. They want, oh, he said, uh, they're not going to talk about that. And his parents uh, said, uh, well, we know this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but now he sees and we don't know. Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. 
Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. <laughs> you know? It's like when the pharmacy says, oh, sorry, your child's over 18. We're not going to talk to you. He's of age. Talk to him yourself. And here's why. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed, here's our verb, if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so for this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. If they confess Jesus as the Christ, they get kicked out of their synagogue. Chapter 12 and verse 40, also in John, John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Remember Nicodemus came by night? Joseph of Arimathea, there were others. Many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And here's why. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. If you let public opinion shape how you confess Christ, shame on you. And say, oh, well, I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be attacked. And we're living in a day and age where when you defend biblical norms and standards, you're automatically a hater. When you talk about the Scriptures, you're a hater. But I tell you, are you going to confess Christ or are you going to deny Christ? Because here's the danger. Not confessing Christ has a heavenly consequence. There are rewards for confessing the Christ. And you can forfeit those rewards. In order for the Father to bestow this reward upon you, think of it like a, um, I don't know, a gold medal or a crown or some kind of an, an award like the Queen of England can make you the, uh, give you the order of the, of the garter or the order of the bath or some kind of a... They've got these awards and the Queen can give them to you. But here's an, uh, a, a crown, uh, a, an award that the Father bestows. God the Father, but He only bestows it. Think of it as the order of confession. The Father only bestows upon it when the Son commends us when the Son confesses that we confessed Him. And in Matthew 10, 32, we have this, Therefore, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny Him before My Father who is in heaven. So do you want to confess Christ? You're going to deny Christ. Because there's a pedagogical blessing that's yours for confessing the Christ. Christ will confess your name before the Father and said, that's my faithful witness. Remember Antipas? The faithful witness who um, did not deny Christ even during uh, times of testing. All right. So confessing Christ may have earthly consequences, but not confessing Christ has a heavenly consequence. Confessing the good confession demands that we fight the good fight. Confessing the good confession demands that we fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 6, verses 12 and 15. I'm sorry, 12 and 13. Confessing the good confession requires or demands that we fight the good fight. 
fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And we do this. The, the, most, the most obvious example is the ritual of water baptism. You stand before men and God and angels alike and everyone and you make the good confession. You declare that you are dead in Christ, buried in Christ, risen in Christ. And I dunk you under the water and I bring you back up. I've never left anybody under the water. And I bring you back up to walk in the newness of life. And you are making the good confession. You are declaring, I belong to Jesus Christ. And you're putting a bullseye on your back because the adversary walks around like a prowling lion seeking to devour. But that's fine. Because you've made the good confession, you're ready now to fight the good fight. By the way, there's additional confessions. You want to serve as a deacon? Now you've got two bullseyes. You want to serve as an elder? Become a pastor of a church? Now you've got three or four or five bullseyes. I mean, they just keep piling on. Make the good confession. Jesus did. Timothy did. We have these examples. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When I did the ordination service in Kiev, Ukraine last month for Oleg Lezinski, you get hands laid on you in the ordination ceremony of the laying on of hands. Your fellow elders come and we don't, uh, we don't confer any magic powers or special ability. You know, it's not a, he doesn't get a, an apostolic succession superpower to do ma- mystical things. But we do identify this as a fellow elder, a pastor, a man that we pray for, a man that we love and support, and a man that Satan is going to tear down as soon as he can. Every attack is coming after that man. Timothy made the good confession. Then it says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. What did he do? Who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. You think Jesus was doing a 1 John 1, 9 moment there? And they, uh, of course not. Not that kind of confession. But he did say, my kingdom is not of this world. He did uh, say uh, when Pontius wanted to know, are you the Christ? All right. He testified the good confession at his trial before Pontius Pilate. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. The standard for faithfulness is until Jesus returns. Hold fast. Keep your confession without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He'll be here any day now. He'll be here any moment now. Don't waver in your priesthood. How sad would it be to finally despair, to finally give up, to throw away, you know, give up your priesthood, give up your ministry, give up your marriage, give up whatever, and just stop walking according, throw your Bible away and decide to become a pagan. You still have eternal life. You will go to heaven when you die. But the loving hand of God's discipline is very quickly coming upon you. Because you and I are called to stay faithful until the end. And until that trumpet sounds, we're not at the end yet. Hebrews has five warning passages as well as five proclamations of hope. Did you know that? Hebrews has five warning passages where Armenian theology scares people into thinking they can lose their salvation. Calvinistic theology tries to not scare people, but then says, well, they were never saved to begin with. Um, 
the better view is neither Calvinistic nor Arminian, but says, here's what we have in Christ. We are eternally secure. We don't lose our salvation, but we forsake our priesthood when we fall into apostasy. So there's five warning passages in Hebrews. There's also five proclamations of hope. We've already seen Hebrews 3.6, whose house we are if, if we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Is that what it says? The confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. There's our first use of hope. Hope comes back in chapter 6 and verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Again, rapture. There's no other standing of end. It's not the end of the world. That's crazy. It's not, that's not until after the, the millennium and, and then we get a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. What's the end? It's the end of the church. The end of the of the present stewardship. It's the rapture. Hold fast your hope until the end. That's 611. 618. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. And where's that hope? This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. If you and I are not rapture-focused day by day, within the veil, exercising our priestly function, we're not living out the book of Hebrews. This is beautiful, and this is for all of us to be living it out. It's an anchor. You got some instability going on? You want to get rid of that? You know, the unbelievers got a whole lot of instability and baby believers and believers without doctrine, there's instability everywhere. It's because they don't realize the anchor is within the veil. The anchor, the stability is our priesthood in Christ waiting for that trumpet day by day. That's our living hope. So the rapture is stabilizing. Rapture doctrine is stabilizing. Chapter 7 and verse 19 The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Again, hope in a rapture context, in a priesthood context. Because we are not under law, we're in Christ. We have a better hope. We draw near when we enter within the veil, we function in our priesthood. But really, we're all going to draw near when that trumpet sounds and we draw near to God in that great genuflex in the sky. We will be drawing near. And then our fifth statement of hope in 1023. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, some people that make promises, you can't trust them because they're not faithful. But God makes promises we can trust because God is faithful. That makes our faith infinitely valuable. Not because of the value of faith, but because of the faithfulness of the one promising. This is so important. Our faith is infinitely valuable because He is eternally faithful. 
please, this is such a big difference. We've got to get this. This is, this is important. Infinitely valuable because He is eternally faithful. There's false religions out there and their followers exercise faith. You know, do you know any Muslims? Do you know any Hindus? Do you know any Mormons? Do you know any Buddhists? They have faith in their God, in their text. Well, let me tell you, does their faith have value? Well, if their God's a liar, or if their God is a fallen angel posing as a God, remember, there's only one God. He is infinitely faithful. So our faith is infinitely valuable. Whereas false faith in a false object is worthless. Tragically worthless. If you believe a liar, shame on you. Why do you believe him? So if you need passages on faithfulness, these are some good ones. We've got Hebrews 10.23, of course, we just read. He who promised is faithful. Hebrews 11.11 is how Sarah conceived. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. She's 90 years old. She is way past menopause, right? She is past childbearing age. She has not had a a monthly cycle in decades. But God said she's going to have a baby. And by faith, she received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life because she considered him faithful who had promised. Amen. When you're claiming the promises of God, you're saying, God, you are faithful. And this is what you promised. Hebrews 12, 26. God is faithful. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven See, here's a promise that's yet to be fulfilled. You might have heard this, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because he promised, and he said, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth. When he destroyed the earth at Noah's flood, guess what? That didn't touch the universe. It was a global flood. Sometimes it's called a universal flood, but it was strictly a global flood on this globe. But the next destruction is by fire, not by water, and it's not limited to this globe. It is not going to be a global fire. Forget about global warming. We have universal warming when all the matter in this physical universe is consumed. And He has promised Because once he finishes that, all things are made new. And we have the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we have his promise. God is faithful. Romans 4.21, God is faithful. Do I need to go through all these? Romans 4.21. I want to get to... Man, i got 11 minutes. here's uh, Abraham. This is the Abraham side of, we looked at Sarah earlier. This is the Abraham side. In hope against hope, he believes that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. So she was past her time. I mentioned not having the monthly thing. He's past his time not having... Uh, Viagra hasn't been invented yet. And he's, uh, he's, he's getting up there. And he's non-functional in the marital relations department. Am I making sense? All right. And uh, his body is as good as dead, it says. All right. Might be opening up a discussion for parents with their children this morning. But it's Father's Day. Yeah. <laughs> But he contemplates his, his uh, incapacity to make babies, and yet God promised. His body is good as dead, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. God promised it, God's going to do it. And we're thrilled just to wait for that trumpet to sound. He promised it would happen. So we're here waiting, Lord. We're, we're in the veil. We're using our priesthood. We're waiting for that trumpet. That's our blessing. He who promised is faithful. Titus 1-2. Say enough already. Pastor, I get it. God's faithful. Well, just in case you need more verses. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You think you can lose your salvation? You're calling God a liar, saying he can't make good on his promises. 1 John 2.25. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. All right. Now oh, I've got to leave you hanging. Consider, consider, consider. All right, here's what he got to think about in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So use some inventiveness. Use some creativity. Right? We're not creators, but we are creative in his image. This is why I, I God bless our Sunday school teachers. They they, they, they take the Bible, the Word of God, and they find these creative ways to communicate it to our children, to our young people. And they, 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 they're just creative as they consider what's going to speak to this, to this child. It's, it's just creativity is amazing. And, and Doug or musicians, singer-songwriters, that they just they get creative as they consider how they're going to communicate in their music. They consider what words rhyme with other words. They consider what tempo, what beat, what, you know, if, if, if you're singing about the rapture, it really shouldn't be a slow funeral dirge. It ought to be a peppy, exciting, fun. So consider, if you're writing a song about the rapture, consider, when you're considering, you're putting active thought into the process. Imagination. Consider. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What is it that can get your brother off the stick? Because the pastor can't figure it out. Maybe you can. It's one another. It's all of us. 
It's not just one preacher haranguing the whole room to get with the program and start living doctrine, right? We all stimulate one another. And we'll have some fun with this next week. I'm going to bring a sharp stick. No, not really. But, <laughs> but if, if, if you were living in the ancient world driving an ox cart, the goad was a sharp pointed stick. Okay? It's like the accelerator pedal in a Ford Mustang. You press the accelerator down, the car goes faster. Well, with an ox, you want that ox to go faster, you poke him. It's a sharp stick that pokes him in the... Yeah. All right? And we need that. You need that. I need that. Every brother and sister I know needs for God the Holy Spirit and the Bible and the Word of God and your brothers and sisters to just poke you in the backside as often as possible. To say, hey, are you walking with the Lord? Hurry up, speed it up. Let's go. Let's go faster. The trumpet's going to sound. Let's bear fruit. Come on. And we get to do that. And we can find creative ways to do that. We can find inventive ways to do that. Consider how to stimulate one another to agape love and good deeds. All right, this is where we'll pick up. In two weeks, we're going to have a missionary here next week, and then I'm thrilled with that. So missionary report next week, and then in two weeks, potluck Sunday in two weeks. Potluck Sunday, we'll be back because we've got we to gotta do some mutual stimulation, and then we've got rapture doctrine in verse 25. The rapture of the church is in verse 25, and that's what keeps us on track. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, Father, how it just, it, um, it comes alive. It speaks to us. I thank you when, when brothers and sisters are humble to receive the word implanted, that it, uh, it, it, it is implanted, Father. It dwells richly within us. I thank you that we can receive it and we take it in, we personalize it to the depth of our soul, to the very core of our being. Thy word I have hid in my heart. Thank you, Father for ministering your word on this day in this way. Father, we thank you for the the new baby born just last night. We uh, celebrate with this little girl and her mom and dad. We pray for them as they raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This little girl now has physical life. This girl needs spiritual life. She needs to hear the gospel when she's old enough to understand that she is a sinner in Adam and she needs eternal life in Christ. So, Father, uh, might we be uh, sensitive to all of our children in uh, all these young people that when they're asking the right questions and wanting to know the truth and when they're ready for the, for the gospel hearing, might we, might we be faithful to proclaim this, this simple message. I thank you, Father, for our priesthood in Christ, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.